there is a a phrase in Zechariah in this passage that really caught my attention. It's the phrase, prisoners of hope. And today, that's what I want us to talk about. What, is it, what does it mean to be a prisoner of hope? You, you can be imprisoned by a lot of things. You can be imprisoned because you committed a crime or you were accused of committing a crime. You can be imprisoned by the limitations of your body that you were born with or that happens over time to you. You can, you can be imprisoned by an addiction or an anxiety or a depression. You can be imprisoned because you were born with the wrong color of skin for the situation or society that you are in. But what does it mean to be imprisoned by hope? And is it a good thing? That's what I want us to explore together. So in, in the first passage that we read uh, in Zechariah 9, uh, we're, we're looking at a, a prophet doing his job here. And usually prophets are doing one of two things. Um, these aren't the only things they do, but these are uh, some of the main things. So the first thing that a prophet often does is look at what's happening in the world and look at the traditions of what God has given his or her people and then speaks to what God is doing in the situation. So it might be, hey, these folks on the horizon coming towards us, they're coming because of the judgment of God. Or this bountiful harvest is because of the blessings of God. But another thing that a prophet does is sometimes a prophet is so divinely inspired by a vision that just doesn't exist. And there's really no way apart from a, a, a divine change of mind and heart to understand how this could be a potentially true reality. And this second way is the way that we see Zechariah using his platform as a prophet to show us something that is new, to show us something that is different. And um, I was talking with a friend of mine named Pete not too long ago, we and our spouses, Becky was there and, and, and Pete and Pete's spouse, Catherine, and, and we were talking about this experiment that we had tried in, um, in Binghampton in this intentional community that we were, were working on and towards for, for many years. And he was talking about the things that we tried that failed, that didn't work. And as he was talking about these things, he was saying, but, but yet they still mattered. We, we tried to share our resources in this way, and ultimately it didn't, it didn't work. We, we tried to get these businesses going out of the shop here in a, in a communal way that was different than the typical, typical capitalist way of starting businesses, but it didn't work. And he was trying to encourage us and encourage himself that those things still mattered. And as I think about what Zachariah is putting forth here, it's something that we, we haven't seen. We haven't seen God bring peace to the earth, um, not, through, not through bloodshed, but through uh, a victorious king who is humble and 
who does not come on a war horse, but instead a donkey. Of course, we relate this to Jesus, and, and we'll get there. But at the same time, we're still in the midst of uh, global strife, both externally and within each one of us. And so sometimes this is what we need. We need prophets who God raises up to speak to a vision of a future, whether it be just something for you in your life, in your relationships, or whether it be for society as a whole that just doesn't yet exist, that we couldn't on our own imagine, and to be captivated and to be fettered and chained to the hope of that thing, to feel the weight of that possibility, the chains of challenge amongst us and on us. So as we look at this text for a moment in Zechariah, um, we're dealing with a group of people here, the Jewish people that Zechariah is talking to, who they've been through a lot. They uh, are currently back in Jerusalem after spending uh, a, a long amount of time in exile, which means they were forcibly taken from their homes and they were forced to live uh, in, in a strange land in Babylon and they were forced to live under certain restrictions and conditions and they wanted to go home so bad. And so, and, and many, many uh, Jewish people were killed and, um, and, and never made it home and were scattered all over the place. But now there's a group of Jewish people that have been able to return home, many of them for the first time in their lives of knowing this place that they'd heard of ever since they were born. And um, Zechariah is speaking to the situation that they're in because they're far from safe. They are um, still under the rule of the Persians, although it's a more benevolent type of rule, and they still have enemies around them. And Zechariah is trying to paint for them a vision of something that is coming that is unexpected. Uh, they're used to hearing about the judgment and the consequences of their actions and, and uh, what's happening as they turn away from God and turn away from justice. Um, but here Zechariah says this in verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. So we've got this image of a king coming back, but describing these all-important places, Jerusalem and Zion, really talking about the same place, as, as a, a personified as a daughter. So this king coming is, is not coming um, to rally troops. He's not a blood-soaked king. He's not riding victoriously uh, with, with a sword and a shield, but he's coming uh, to the daughter uh, uh, the city, and uh, this evokes already a different kind of picture than what we might expect for how peace might come about. Uh, there's, some, you know, there's some uh, patriarchal aspects to this reading as well, but the metaphor it still it still works to show. Um, I think about coming home to my daughter. You know, that's an image of of peace and hope. And as we continue to read. It says of this king that's coming with righteousness and, and, and victory. It says he's coming lowly and riding on a donkey. 
uh, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This is not how a warrior king who would inspire confidence in his people would typically come, even in a, in a vision uh, in the Old Testament uh, uh, of God. And so this already should be getting our attention of a type of vision about what might be coming in the future. And so um, already for the listeners then and for us today, you can probably feel, some of us, cynicism creeping into the back of your mind and your heart about this. Um, that this is not possible in this world that's soaked in blood and rage and violence um, that we live in today. And then in verse 10, he takes it further. He says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. Um, I like I like uh, comic books and stuff like that and superhero stuff and um, I don't know if anybody remembers watching a, one of the old Superman movies, but there was there was one of them where he flies around and he gathers up the nuclear missiles and he like throws them into the sun, you know. And this is kind of the picture of of what we see here in sort of a literal reading of this is we see this this king, this Messiah coming in, and he's taking away the weapons of war. He's doing away with them. And then after that, it says he proclaims peace to the nations. And this rule will extend from sea to sea. So as far as as those ancient Near Eastern people's minds would have been thinking about uh, the rule of this king from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, even further bringing out um, peace and and one um, one translation, uh, this this guy who has has really tried to unpack the the poetic syntax of the Hebrew language, he he doesn't say proclaim peace, but more like broker peace, like that this this Messiah, this picture of this person who will ultimately bring peace to the world, uh, won't just proclaim it and say here's what it is, but will actually negotiate this this peace. And for me, I, I can't help but think about what's happening in our country right now and in other places in the world where humble and lowly people have been protesting uh, for the rights of our black brothers and sisters around the world and peaceful negotiations have been taking place um, in order to bring reform uh, to the way we treat one another. So when we think about um, uh, lowering the funding of, of the police or we think about um, changing what police even do and are responsible for um, and changing laws about chokeholds being illegal and things like that, it's like those war horses are being taken away. Those chariots are being removed. Um, the The turn towards other things that have been talked about, but little has been done um, because uh, the people in power have not been persuaded strongly enough to do something about mass incarceration and and issues like this. Um, We see this taking place on some level in our society today. And so I, I typically do have hope about these things, but even more so reading this text and then seeing this 
actually happening in some, in some respect in our society right now. But as I'm, as I'm reading this, I can't help but shake a sense of, of cynicism that I, that I hear from people from all sides of the political spectrum and, 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 and religious or a-religious about the limits of these things. And that's why I think scriptures like these that was given to us today are so valuable and important because it reminds us of the arresting power that hope can have in our lives. Yet, um, I keep mentioning this, this, this cynicism, and, and I want to share a quick, a quick story. Yesterday, you know, it was this 4th of July, and it's, it's no coincidence that, uh, that this idea of being a prisoner, the contrast of freedom stuck out uh, to me in, in, the, in the lectionary passage today. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of, of talk and heightened attention and celebration with another holiday called Juneteenth. And that is the holiday in which the last enslaved people in Texas, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, found out that they were free. And so the logic follows that uh, the true Independence Day for our country would actually be Juneteenth, because that was the first time in our history in which all people uh, on, our, on our continent had the, right, let me just say the United States, I don't know the whole continent, uh, had a, the opportunity to be free. And so, um, you know, Becky and I were talking about it uh, yesterday, and I was like, I'm just, I, you know, I want to let the kids shoot off fireworks. We were traveling during Juneteenth this year and it, uh, to, to Becky's mom's house, and um, we, we, uh, we agreed, and it took a lot of sort of back-and-forth discussion that we weren't going to celebrate Fourth of July, but we didn't decide it until the Fourth of July. And, um, and I still was like grilling, you know, and, um, there were people all up and down our street shooting fireworks and, um, and all of them were black. <laughs> and so it was, it was such a, a messy thing. And Benjamin was really upset, you know, and we let him shoot off a, a couple of fireworks. So we didn't, we didn't actually do a great job of not celebrating, uh, the 4th of July. Uh, but, um, there, there was still contained in it like a, a granule of hope of that as we celebrate things differently it's it's fuel to the fire of this 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 restraining hope the hope of equality in america restrained us from just doing fourth of july like normal but it's also opening up other opportunities and this the cynic in me says, well, it doesn't matter, you know, like everybody's still celebrating it and, and that kind of thing. And, um, and you know, what does it really mean? And then there's other, there's other cynical people, um, talking about all of the changes that are happening and the protests that are happening and saying, well, it's not being done right. And well, you're just covering up one thing for another thing. And, you know, all of these sorts of arguments. And this brings us to what Jesus says in Matthew 11, this address of this cynicism, uh, because it's hard to hope 
and it and it points towards something that doesn't yet exist. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 16. He says, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And then he talks about himself and John the Baptist. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then he says, but wisdom is, is proved right by her deeds. And so Jesus is, is, is calling out um, the, the religious folk who are complaining about both John the Baptist and Jesus's approach to this bringing in this hopeful new reality. For, for John the Baptist, they're saying, well, this guy's just nuts. He just lives out in the desert. You know, but what, did, what was John actually doing? He was one by one responding to people as he called them to repentance for the kingdom of God that happened. He had different people come up and say, what do I need to do to repent? And he would answer them one at a time, and then he would baptize them into this new repentance and this new reality. But people criticized his methods. Like, why are you out there in the desert doing that? And why aren't, why aren't you doing it in society? And there's got to be a better way to do this. And your language is pretty harsh. And then Jesus comes with a very different approach. He's amongst the people. He's eating in different homes almost daily at different times of people who would never mingle together. And they're criticizing him for doing that. And yet he's ushering in this new reality, this new bond of humanity. And the cynic in the religious people is coming out and criticizing whichever way John or Jesus is trying to do this. And I think, I think part of it is, is when, when our dreams and our hopes, when we, when we kind of like let them just loose we, we no longer allow them to, to weigh us down, and they, they sort of disintegrate out. We're not left which, with, with, with what we need, with, which, with, much, le- with um, much more uh, to do other than to criticize and be scared. And, and furthermore, when we see somebody who is able to um, embrace the path of a John or a Jesus— it scares us because we've long since written that off and said, well, it can't be done or it shouldn't be done because I got hurt and I have these wounds from when I tried and when I hoped and when I did those things. And so it can scare us and even bring us into a a sense of rage when we see someone living into this hope and willing to be harnessed and shackled to this dream of a better life a better future. Have you ever felt like that? Have, have you ever done that to somebody? Have you ever seen somebody that was just so hopeful that it just got on your nerves? Um, you know, uh, when, when I put together an outfit that I really like, and then somebody says, I won't name any names, you know, but says like, Oh, but you're wearing those shoes. You should have worn the other shoes with that. Right? Like I'm like, come on, man. Like I'm I'm feeling really good about this situation. You got to pick out the one thing that you don't like, and and uh, 
<laughs> oh, I got a I love you from Benjamin. Thanks, Benji. That you, that you don't like. And and what does that say about your hope for a good outfit for yourself? Uh, when when you got to pick at my fresh digs going on here, right? Like we we've all been in in, in those kinds of situations. Or or to bring it to a little bit more serious note, it's like I agree with your cause, but I don't agree with your methods. Ooh. Or you might be in the type of in a type of relationship where you feel like you're the only one hoping for something better and your partner is trapped in cynicism or you might be that cynical one. But um, what we're seeing here is how when we release ourselves from hope, how it can end us in a place of cynicism and a place of narrow mindedness and a too deep or too uh, narrow of a focus uh, so that we can't see other possibilities. So, um, you know, the, the, one, of, one of the things that, that a cynic might say of a hopeful person is that they're naive. And uh, Jesus and John the Baptist were anything but that. I mean, they, they, they had experienced the full range of, of human, uh, human beings' capacity for cruelty. Um, and and uh, so if you're hopeful and not naive, that means you've experienced the things that the world has to throw at you, but somehow you're able to keep that divine spark of hope. And uh, it reminds me of this rapper that I really like named uh, Lupe Fiasco. Um, he he has this song, and it's called "All Black Everything." And um, he his albums uh, it's called like uh, conscious hip hop, um, which he he disparages that term, but he he talks about really serious issues in in his music, and um, he also has like light more more fun stuff as well but he uses these really powerful metaphors and he's somebody well acquainted with with the with suffering in life and yet he's able to dream of this hope and this perspective so this song all black everything you think at first based on the title and that he's a black rapper is he's going to give you this picture of what it what would it mean for you know just to just to dream about just like black people you know and and them kind of uh, having a better lot but it's really more complicated he's given us like a dual metaphor of like closing your eyes and imagining but also reimagining america's history in a different way and i'm going to read to you a couple of the lyrics from the song uh and i'm just going to read them like i'm preaching not like i'm rapping because i'm not a rapper uh so here's here's some of the lyrics he's in in the beginning of the song he says this you would never know if you could ever be if you never try, you would never see. And skipping down to one of the verses, he says, uh, he's imagining what this reality would look like. He said, and we didn't get exploited. White man ain't fear it, so he did not destroy it. We ain't work for free. See, they had to employ it. Built it up together, so we equally appointed. First hundred years, see, we actually enjoyed it. Constitution written by W.E.B. Du Bois, were no reconstructions. Civil war got avoided. Little bl black Sambo grows up to be a lawyer. Extra, extra on the newsstands. 
black woman voted head of Ku Klux Klan. Malcolm Little dies as an old man. Martin Luther King read the eulogy for him. Followed by Bill O'Reilly, who read from the Koran, President Bush sends condolences from Iran, where Fox News reports live that Ahmad, uh, Ahmad Danini uh, Jad wins Mandela Peace Prize. And later on in the song, he says, and I know it's just a fantasy, but I cordially invite you to ask, why can't it be? Now we can't do nothing about the past, but we can do something about the future that we have. See, I fell asleep and I had a dream and it was all black, everything. Um, so in this song uh, and this imagining of this future, that's, it's, it's kind of ludicrous to even imagine something like that with the people he puts in those spots. Uh, but the importance here is an appeal to hope, is an appeal to allow yourself to be restrained and even shackled in your thinking and in your actions by a hope greater than what you can currently imagine. And that might be primarily about a hope for society or a relationship or personal change. When Jesus, um, when Jesus continues uh, in, in, in this passage here, he talks about and he prays and says, uh, I'm thankful that you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and, re and revealed them to little children. And I think we have to tap into that perspective. Um, this morning, Benjamin wanted to, set, wanted to do a sparkler at 6 a.m. And he refused to give up hope that I would let him do that. He continued to ask and ask and ask until I made some cinnamon rolls and those were ready. And I uh, went out to my studio to, to finish thinking about this sermon. And I think that's part of the perspective that maybe we need right now. Maybe uh, we can apply to what's happening in our world. Because I know this. I know that I can look at what's happening right now in society and say, well, maybe if that can change, maybe a relationship I'm in can change. Maybe, maybe if, if that can change out there, maybe, maybe I can change. And um, the, the key in, in both of these passages, in Zechariah and Matthew, as I, as I finish up here, is that hope is is different than just willpower. Willpower is, I see what it needs to be, and I'm going to go about making that change and get it done, and I'll just keep trying until it happens. Hope requires help, and hope requires an, a, an anguish of unmet desires and longings, waiting for inspiration from God. And so I hope this morning that we can find ourselves actively resting and waiting in hope. And uh, thank you guys for being with us this morning. Amen. Go in peace. Be safe.